Here at Slate, Seth Stevenson is the guy we send to big trials. He started out covering the Microsoft antitrust trial. That was nearly 25 years ago. I covered Michael Jackson's trial and Scooter Libby and then Whitey Bulger and Jahar Sarnaya. He got interested in his latest trial, Sarah Palin versus The New York Times, after he'd been hanging around the Southern District of New York reporting on a different prosecution. I covered the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, um, which was also in, the, in this district. And I sort of got on the email list and they send out notable trials upcoming. And I saw this one and I said, whoa, that's interesting. And then I read a little bit more about it. And I said, whoa, the future of American journalism is possibly at stake here. Uh, and I said, I would like to see that. So that's how I came to be there. Sarah Palin versus The New York Times is about a journalistic error. The stuff of every reporter's nightmares. I mean, I think part of the reason why this case has been so fascinating for people like you and me is that it's about a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day that is very familiar to all of us. Everyone has gotten something wrong in an article and woken up in the middle of the night and been like, did I mess that up? Yeah, I've, I mean, I have had that feeling many times. Or, or early on in my career, um, a crusty older editor, Jack, Jack Schaefer, said to me, to write is eventually to goof. Because you're just, you're, you're human. You are going to mess up at some point, despite your best efforts. And generally, those mess ups are you, you know, misspelled a name or got a small fact wrong and nobody really cares or notices. But this error was not like that. It implied that a certain hockey mom from Alaska bore responsibility for a mass shooting. In this case, we have a journalist working on deadline, kind of rushing and and rushing to say something interesting and to sharpen an argument. And he just goes too far and he's moving too fast and he gets a little sloppy. And it turns out the thing that he said that was wrong, the gravity of it was huge. And it was he sort of just messed with with the wrong person in the wrong way at the wrong moment. And a simple correction was not enough for Sarah Palin. She sued for libel. Today on the show, even though a judge just dismissed this libel suit, it's not going anywhere. Seth Stevenson will explain why. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. A funny thing about Sarah Palin versus The New York Times is that even though the jury is still out, we know how the decision is going to go down. That's because Monday afternoon, the judge himself plainly stated that the standard for libel was not met here. But he is letting the jury continue to do its work as a procedural matter. Everyone expects that no matter what they say, the case is going to be appealed. The only reason this case made it this far in the first place 
is because of how badly the paper of record messed up. So let's go back to the beginning. June 14th, 2017. That's when the editorial board published an opinion piece. They called it America's Lethal Politics. The day before, a congressional baseball practice had been interrupted by gunfire. And the editor who typed out this piece was trying to argue that shootings like this were going to get more common as political rhetoric got more heated. Seth Stevenson says, you can still read this article online, though it's got a bunch of hefty corrections at the bottom. So if you read it now, what you would see is is an op-ed about uh, a day in June 2017. If you might remember, these Republican congressmen were practicing baseball on a field in Virginia for the annual congressional baseball game, and and a gunman came out and started firing at them. And he severely, he wounded several people, but severely wounded Congressman Steve Scalise. And the editorial came out later that day, and it basically had two points. One point was pro-gun control, sort of. If there weren't so many guns floating around, then when a madman, you know, gets an itch to do something terrible, it wouldn't be so easy for him to have a gun and do it, um, particularly a rifle like this one that was used. Um, The other prong of the editorial was also, we should all tone down our political rhetoric because we don't want to turn up the temperature and fan the flames because you never know what person out there is going to be incited by your language to do something terrible. And the shooter in this case, he he was a Bernie Sanders supporter. And then this op-ed, it basically, it, it both sides to this. It said, you know, we have inciting language not on the left wing and the right wing, right? The op-ed said, we're not sure exactly what inspired this this shooter, but we can point back to when Gabby Giffords, who this is another case of a congressperson being shot in, in recent memory back in 2011, Gabby Giffords was shot. And in that case, the op-ed said there was a clear link to political incitement. And it pointed to a map that Sarah Palin's political action committee had circulated where there were sort of gun sight targets on the district's of a bunch of Democrats who they were trying to beat in the upcoming election because those Democrats had voted for Obamacare. Well, and importantly, it was it didn't just say that the gun sites were on the districts. It said the crosshairs were over the politicians themselves, which turned out not to be true. That was a factual error, which they have since corrected. If you read the editorial now, it would say over the districts. But yes, and when it was published, it said over the Congress people themselves. That was one of two large errors, which got the Times in a lot of trouble. The other error was suggesting that there was, in fact, a link between that map that Sarah Palin's pack put out and the shooting of Gabby Giffords by Jared Loeffner. The problem was there wasn't. So the Times saying that Sarah Palin's map was connected to this, that had been debunked and was a clear error. And immediately when the editorial went up online, a lot of people noticed it and got angry. And and Ross Douthat, the uh, conservative Times opinion columnist wrote to James Bennett, the editor of the opinion section who had actually written this editorial or at least rewritten this editorial and inserted that fact to say, you got this wrong. Everyone seemed to know this was wrong except the Times editorial board. And within two, well, that day, Sarah Palin tweeted out that she was consulting attorneys. And within two weeks, she had filed her lawsuit. Legal scholars look at a case like this one as a trial balloon. Because for years, U.S. libel law has been dictated by the Sullivan Rule, a precedent from decades ago. 
This rule was laid out in a case known as New York Times versus Sullivan. It made accusing journalists of libel pretty difficult. Plaintiffs need to prove actual malice on the part of reporters who get a story wrong. A simple mistake does not count. In the last few years, a group of mostly conservative scholars have argued for overturning New York Times versus Sullivan. And they've got powerful allies, including Supreme Court justices Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas. Some people have been kind of looking for a way to challenge that standard. And this is a case, the Sarah Palin versus New York Times case, this is a case where the accusation is is obviously quite harmful. They, they, they accuse Sarah Palin of inciting a murder that killed a nine-year-old girl, among others. It's, you know, it's an extremely harsh accusation that was wrong. And so this case has, you know, there are a lot of really bad facts for the Times. And the case initially got dismissed by a judge right away, right after Sarah Palin filed it. But then that got overturned and the case went to trial. It's pretty rare for a libel case to actually even make it to trial. And people are wondering who is funding this trial. That seems to be a bit of a mystery. I was going to ask you that. Like, is Sarah Palin self-funding her her case here? I very much doubt that. You're, you know, it's going to it's got based on people I've talked to, it's, you know, it's, we're talking about more than a million dollars to do this. And, and if you if they then if they lose and then appeal, if the goal is, in fact, to take this to the Supreme Court and try to overturn New York Times versus Sullivan or something, you're talking about like five million dollars or something like that all in. That's a lot of money. Sarah Palin is, is not. No one seems to think Sarah Palin is funding this. Nobody. Everybody's wondering, are the, are the attorneys doing this on contingency? Probably not. Are they doing it just for the publicity? Probably not. Probably someone out there is funding this in hopes that they're going to shake up American journalism and change the rules. These lawyers, this is the same team that sued Gawker. Right. Years ago, driving them out of business over this Hulk Hogan sex tape. And so it seems like going after journalists is kind of their hobby horse. It is. And that, that wasn't a defamation case. It was a privacy case, as everyone I've talked to is, is wants to point out. But, yeah, same idea. Going after a publication, looking for a case where you can hurt a publication. Um, and yes, that is it's the same legal team out of Tampa. But interestingly, the other person who was in, involved, the other lawyer on that team uh, for Hulk Hogan was this guy, Charles Harder, uh, Los Angeles-based lawyer. And he has been in the courtroom every day at the Sarah Palin versus New York Times trial. I sit next to him all the time. He's huh. an observer. He's just there taking copious notes. And when I asked him, you know, why are you here? Why are you taking all those notes? Are you, writing a, are you writing a piece? Are you writing a book? No, no, no. I'm just here to observe and learn, which was like slightly chilling for me because it seems like he's kind of trying to figure out the roadmap for how you can make this work, how you can hurt some large journalistic institution. I asked, I actually asked Charles Harder, do you know who's funding this? And he said that he did not. Um, and I believe him. I don't think he was lying about that. But it, that, is, that is like the huge mystery. Who is behind this? Seth says, if Sarah Palin wanted to win her case... With New York Times versus Sullivan as precedent, she'd need to prove four things. Basically, four things. First, that that there was a falsity. And the Times corrected this as, and, and sort of admitted that they made a factual error. So I don't think that's much in dispute that the statements were false. The next thing is that the statements were 
quote, of and concerning Sarah Palin. That's the legal language. Basically that they clearly referred to Sarah Palin. Given that she's mentioned by name in the editorial, I think she's not going to have a problem with that. The Times has sort of argued that they were talking about Sarah Palin's PAC, not about Sarah Palin, but it became clear in testimony that Sarah Palin's PAC just is Sarah Palin and everyone understands that Sarah Palin's PAC just is, is Sarah Palin. So I don't think that's really an issue. The next thing is that the statements were defamatory. The third thing is that they were defamatory, meaning that they could expose her to ridicule, contempt, hatred, that kind of thing. Given that the statement accuses her of inciting the murder of a nine-year-old girl and other people, I, I feel like it's a defamatory statement. Um, the Times, you know, has argued over whether she actually suffered any reputational harm from this, but to me, that's that bar has been crossed. The one thing that Sarah Palin needs to prove where I think she's going to have a really hard time proving it is this fourth element, which only comes into play with a public figure, a celebrity or an elected official, which is actual malice. And actual malice means for her to, for the times to be found guilty of, uh, to, to be found liable of libel, the times had to have known what they were saying was wrong, consciously, deliberately ignored the truth of the matter, intended to defame Sarah Palin. I think it's just very hard for her to demonstrate that. Hmm. The thing about this case that I think is kind of interesting is we, we talked a little bit about this Sullivan rule, which comes out of New York Times versus Sullivan, the idea that you have to show actual malice in order to win one of these cases against a journalistic outlet. So I guess my question is, with this suit... Are they hoping to be judged on the Sullivan rule or completely overturn it? There just doesn't seem like any sort of like the common understanding of malice or legally actual malice. I just don't think that they show that. The way they they, they tried to show that was to suggest that, that there was sort of a preset narrative in James Bennett's head that he just believed that Sarah Palin had done this thing and, and that she had incited violence. And he just believed it and and stuck his head in the sand and made himself willfully blind to the facts of the matter. And and so there's this there's this language of reckless disregard in the law. And they're trying to sort of suggest that he had a reckless disregard for the facts. I don't think they got it. But there's some question over whether that's the right line. Is that, is that where we should draw the line? Because here's a case where you're accusing someone of inciting the, the murder of a nine-year-old girl and several other people. And potentially, there are just no repercussions for that. Is that right? I'm not exactly sure that's right. Uh, But at the same time, I don't want Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch deciding where the new line should be. So I'm really conflicted about it. After the break, we go inside the courtroom. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to go back a little bit and talk about the testimony. It seems to me like this whole case hinges on the testimony of two people in particular. James Bennett, the editor who wrote the editorial in question, and Sarah Palin, who's claiming she was injured by what was written. I wonder if we can go through their testimony, talk about what it was like, and whether it was illuminating. And I'd like to start with Bennett just because he was the first person on the stand. What did, what was your impression of his testimony? So James Bennett, it was obviously an incredibly intelligent, incredibly serious, incredibly articulate person. And he talked about how terrible he felt when this error was made. He, he talked about immediately trying to rectify it. The problem was he, he did not have a warm bearing um, and he came off less contrite than sort of annoyed. I'm not saying that's what was in his heart, but he just wasn't able to project kind of vulnerability or contrition from the stand. He just didn't seem like a people person. Um, and at some so, point he was actually given a chance to basically apologize and he didn't really take that opportunity. Yeah. Sarah Palin's lawyers really pressed him on this this apology thing. They said, why didn't you apologize? And he and, and his line was, I hope that I have as a result of this process which everyone sort of didn't understand what he meant in that moment. It turned out what he meant was that during, you know, at the time of the error, he had emailed CNN with an on-the-record apology from him, James Bennett, to Sarah Palin. But that apology never ran in <laughs> CNN. And what he meant was he hoped that as a result of the discovery process of this lawsuit that Sarah Palin would have seen that email he sent to the CNN reporter, and thus that's an apology. That, to me, mm, I don't think that really counts as an apology. And they pressed him on it. And he said, well... Okay, but New York Times policy was not to apologize for an error because if we had to, if we apologized for every error, we'd be apologizing all the time for all these little things. And so we just we don't apologize. We assume people know that we deeply regret every error we make. And then Sarah Palin's lawyer said, "Well, but you don't work at the New York Times anymore, so you're no longer you know bound into that policy. What stopped you from apologizing after you left the New York Times, which he left some time ago?" I feel like, though, Sarah, Sarah Palin's lawyer scored some points there by making him look like he wasn't sorry or, or wasn't willing to apologize, was too arrogant to apologize, or somehow didn't feel he'd wronged her or something. I think that was really his weakest moment on the stand. Okay, so Bennett didn't show a ton of contrition. But then there was Sarah Palin's testimony. And you were there for that. You wrote that at first it seemed like she was kind of doing great. And then... It, not so much. What happened? Yeah, at first she seemed solid. She, you know, she she was talking about that Gabby Giffords shooting, and she named all the victims by their full names, and you and she sort of really expressed her emotions when that nine year old girl had been killed, and and Sarah Palin had a daughter the same age, and she had that real politician's touch of sort of expressing empathy, and and she had a lot of charisma, as you know, many politicians do, and as Sarah Palin certainly has had, and and. I, th- I was like, oh, she's doing pretty well. <laughs> and the wheels just totally, totally came off because 
Her lawyers asked her what it felt like in 2017 when this editorial in question got written, what it felt like, how it hurt her. And she said, yes, here it was all over again. The Times did it again. They lied about this again, which no, they had not talked about this before. No one is, including Sarah Palin's lawyers, no one has suggested that the New York Times had made this error before. This is a one-time thing. And her lawyer tried to let her clean it up and she just doubled down and she was just wrong. And they had to go to a sidebar to talk it out. And and she started doing that sort of like meaningless looping word salad talk that she does and getting really fidgety because she knew she was getting something wrong, but she wasn't sure what. And then the next thing that happened was the her lawyers tried to get her to talk about the suffering that she experienced as a result of having been accused of inciting murder. And here's where I think she really failed, her biggest failing on the stand. She just really didn't convey that she'd suffered all that much as a result of this being published. She didn't sound like she had lost a ton of sleep. She'd never taken any medication. She'd never talked to a therapist or a pastor. She couldn't talk about anyone in her family or community who shied away from her or rejected her or come to her and told her what she'd done was evil. She just, and just her emotion, her emotions, like you just didn't get the sense that this really, truly harmed her that much. And I think that was a big problem for her. I think it's interesting to talk about that moment where Sarah Palin talked about how the New York Times lied again and didn't seem to understand why that would be problematic. Because to me, I read about that and I was I was thinking about it in my head and I was like, well, this is kind of the crux of the thing here, which is this is what Palin wants to prove. She wants to prove that the New York Times is biased against her and maybe conservatives more generally. That's not exactly what her lawsuit is doing, though. I will say something. I kind of think that that did play a role a little bit. I think that the, the editors on this piece were kind of willing to believe that Sarah Palin would have incited a murder. Like, I kind of think that wasn't out of the question in, in the way that they think about Sarah Palin. And I think they, because of the way they think about Sarah Palin, it didn't occur to them kind of the gravity of what they were saying about her. Like, the idea of accusing her of inciting the murder of these people, oh, it's Sarah Palin. She says crazy stuff all the time, maybe was in their heads. In that sense, I kind of feel like ideology might have played some role, but that's not enough to prove liable. How do you think the jury saw all this? This was a very attentive jury. I, I, I've watched a lot of trials and I've seen jurors, you know, on occasion, I've seen a juror nod off. I've seen juries that just look like their minds are wandering a little bit or aren't that engaged. This jury was, was, was in it. I felt that. Um, <laughs> How'd you know that? You could just see it on their faces. You could see their body, their posture and while people were talking. You, you just, I don't know, you can just feel when a group of people is attuned popcorn. to something. Or, or <laughs> No, that would be amazing. Um, <laughs> you can just like sort of feel when, you know, the, the vibe of an audience, whether it's attuned to what's happening or not. And, and, and these people were attuned. And so I think they were following these arguments in detail. And I think any reasonably smart, attuned jury would have to say that this did not cross the bar for actual malice. I guess I would say that it feels like this case, part of why it's so confounding is that it a little bit misses the forest for the trees. You're focusing on like little tiny words and those words were harmful and I don't deny that and they were wrong. But it feels like debating this when we literally just had a riot at the U.S. Capitol. I know that was not because of Sarah Palin, but... We <laughs> like it was incited by a politician like America's politics have been lethal. And so it's sort of weird to me that like here we are debating like wh how we 
got here when we did get there eventually. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange as much as I do wonder whether the line is in the right place for actual malice. Like this is not the moment where I want to have journalists scared of writing fearlessly about famous and powerful people. Like this is not as American democracy is in peril. This is not the time I want to weaken journalism. I just I guess in a vacuum, I feel like the rule is imperfect and maybe we could improve upon it. But 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 yes, it like I don't want to. I guess I'll I'll put it this way. I don't want to incite anyone to change this rule. If Palin won in court, like what does journalism look like? Do you think about that as a writer? I mean, I've been thinking about that anyway. I've been thinking about all these mistakes I've made and how, thank goodness, none of them have been too atrocious in the way that this one was. It's hard to say that it would be bad for journalists to check their facts carefully when they make an accusation against someone, right? That's the thing, that's the thing like Charles Harder, who's been watching the trial, this journalist who, who, did, who, who did the case against Gawker, you know, he, he's got a point. Like, there's nothing bad about encouraging journalists to check their facts. And that's the thing that, that Sarah Palin said on the stand. It was like, fine, have your discourse, so, you know, l- let, make your arguments. Just don't get the facts wrong. But of course, everyone makes mistakes. These things are going to happen. We can't eliminate mistakes. We can't legislate away sloppy mistakes, careless mistakes made hastily. We can't get rid of that. It's just a really difficult question. I mean, this is why we have, you know, very complicated laws and why people always talk about them. It's an incredibly difficult thing to figure out where where the line is to make it to make it fair and to make sure everyone is being treated equitably. But deciding these complicated questions using the blunt instrument of a libel lawsuit, that's where things get messy. For now, it seems like one judge accepts the precedent of actual malice. But whether the next judge will, that is an open question. It's already worked its way through the legal system a little bit. And yeah, I think she will appeal. I, I, I think the people bringing this case, whoever is funding it, and I really do think somebody, not Sarah Palin, is funding it. Um, I think that's their that's their goal. I think we'll continue to hear about it. And even regardless of what happens with the future of this case, this is something that people are talking about, this standard, this actual malice standard. When when two Supreme Court justices out of nine are talking about their disagreement with the Supreme Court ruling, you know, people are going to start to eye it and, and wonder uh, how long it is for this world. Seth Stevenson, I I love talking to you about trials. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Mary. Seth Stevenson is a senior writer for Slate. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Carmel Del Shad, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. We are led by Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. <laughs> 